0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue our study in Romans 8. Uh, We've been looking through this wonderfully marvelous chapter for uh, a couple months now. Um, It's been a great blessing for me to teach through uh, this text and, and really the book of Romans as a whole. A reporter from the San Diego Union reported on a court case that was taking place in the San Diego Superior Court. There were two men who were on trial for armed robbery, and an eyewitness took the stand. And the prosecutor moved carefully and said, so you say you were at the scene when the robbery took place? And the witness responded, yes. Prosecutor responded, and you saw a vehicle leave at a high rate of speed? And the witness said, yes prosecutor then asked the witness, and did you observe the occupants? And the witness said, yes, two men. And the prosecutor boomed, are these two men present in the court today? And at this point, the two defendants sealed their fate. They both raised their hands. Listen, although we have sinned, and we stand before God, the righteous judge, guilty, because we have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need not raise our hands. God is on our side. We stand innocent because of his work in our lives through Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that speaks to the very fact that God is certainly on our side. I'm really excited to bring these verses uh, to you this morning. Um, I thought last week, Pastor Dustin did a great job bringing us through the text of John chapter 2, considering the the challenge to put aside the things that uh, kind of distract us from true worship, distract us from seeing the Lord. It it was a good time, a good week, to kind of be at rest in my mind and think through these verses. Uh, My goal is simple this morning. I've prayed about it. I've prayed through this text. and, and Here's what I want you to leave with this morning. That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to walk out of this place this morning with a firm and settled assurance of your salvation. You may not walk out. At the end of the service, I'll walk off the pulpit. We'll open the doors. We'll even open the the glass doors because you may want to run out of this place this morning because you have joy, true joy, in knowing what God has provided for you. Listen, knowing that you're saved... Knowing what God has done for you, resting in the truth of the gospel, understanding the security that once you are God's, you are always His, and that God is actively working on your behalf changes everything. It does, it changes everything. If you're assured of your salvation, if you're not worried and and doubting and, and, and kind of vacillating from left to right, wondering, I wonder if God loves me today. But if you know for sure that God is for you, that he loves you, that you are secure in him, it changes the way that you live your life. It changes the way that you put death, put to death the sin in your life. It changes the way that you serve God, that you trust God, that you walk with God. It changes every thought, every action, and every word. And so this morning, I pray that you leave here with great assurance in the love that God has for you. Listen, This whole idea is so important. We've been looking verse after verse in Romans chapter 8 for weeks now. And again and again and again and again, Paul is writing to assure the believers in Rome in what Christ has done for them, the love that the Father has for them, and the power that the Spirit provides for them. This whole chapter is a chapter of assurance. It's a chapter of God's great love and favor for His children and that the work that He began, He will complete and that He will not lose any of us. We looked a few weeks ago uh, around a a challenging passage that before time began, God began loving in His foreknowledge and calling those who will be His. And those who He called, we, we read in Romans 8, 29, and 30 that he justified and those that God justifies he glorified. Past tense. Certain to happen. You can guarantee it. And now we come to the passage of God's practical security. The practical assurance of knowing what he has done for us. I, w- I want to paint a picture in your mind for me because um, Sometimes the words on the text, we read them and think, okay, that's great, important, and and maybe you're a word person, and you understand that the words have meaning and value, and you can go exactly where Paul is writing. But maybe some of you are are picture people, and you need to paint a picture in your mind of what the text is saying to get a better understanding of it. And so I I want you to think with me, um, think of a castle. So, if you've ever read the, the story of uh, Camelot, you, know, you, th- you think of a, a castle like in Camelot. And in this castle, in this mighty castle, there is a great king that rules over the society that surrounds the castle. And so you have this great king that is ruling from the throne in this castle that is strong. And his people look towards the king For all of their care. This castle has powerful walls. It's a fortress, and there are people working in the fields all around it. The farmers are bringing forth their crops. The tradesmen are applying their trade, and the merchants are applying their merchandise, all for the protection of the king. And the king promises to protect these people. With his military power. These are the king's people, and he sees too their complete care. The king commits to provide for their protection, and somewhat as a father, he was going to provide them with all of their provisions. He opens up the storerooms in the castle and he invites all of the people to come into the storerooms to receive all of the wonderful provisions that he has. The king is the judge of the land. But this king dispenses justice with fairness and with equity. He is fair in all that he does. He is certainly a good king. And around this king are counselors. Counselors. They give wisdom and insight and give him good, sound advice. Do you have that picture in your mind? Can you see yourself living around this castle, having this kind of king ruling over you? And so it is, I think, with our text this morning that we have a picture of God As the mighty king. And in effect. This king is asking us. To come into the fortress. Of his kingdom. He is telling us to come in. And to look around at the armory. And look at all the power. That's in the the walls of the castle. This king is asking us. To consider just how powerful he is. And to remind us in love. that if he is for you, what foe can stand against you? Basically, the king is saying to us, if I am for you, who cares who is against you? He is a mighty king. He's calling us to look at his power. And all of it is at disposal for your protection. Secondly, we see that this king is a generous father. The text tells us this morning that the father did not even spare the son. The most precious and valuable relationship that the father had. He did not spare the son. And if he did not spare the son for us, how much more valuable, how much more special will he provide for all of our other needs? And so we look into the storerooms. We see how full they are. We look at God's heart of generosity. And we're challenged to consider that if he committed to give us what was most important, why wouldn't he give us anything else? We're called to look into God's courtroom who is the righteous judge and dispenses justice. And if the judge declares us not guilty, is there a higher court in the land that can say anything else? Is there another authority that can come and say, yes, but. Even when there is guilt, In the case, the righteous judge declares us free. Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, it's God who justifies. Who cares who condemns? If God has justified us, that's the end of the matter. He is the highest court. He is the righteous judge. He has declared it. And it is true. And then there is Jesus. Standing at the right hand of God the Father, the righteous judge, interceding for us. He died for us. More than that, he was raised to new life. And he's standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding. Pleading our case. And if you grab all of these themes together, that he is a powerful God. Who wants to bless us with all of his gifts. Who's a righteous judge that does not condemn but has set us free. And that his son intercedes for us now. If you grab all of these themes and put them together in your heart. You have full assurance of your salvation. Because nothing that this king provides depends on anything that we do. It is all God. In church, this morning I want you to see that your Father loves you and has lavished upon you grace upon grace. And He wants to give you assurance that if you are His, He will bring to pass these things. Church, our assurance comes from the fact that God is the one that holds us together from start to finish. It's not what we do in partnership with God. It is by faith and receiving the Son that God says, I love you and I have provided for you and I will give you all that you need to succeed and thrive and be blessed and all the promises that I have promised to you, they will not waver, they will not shake, they will not be moved, But they are yours because my son has taken your place. Everything that Paul brings to light in this passage depends upon God wholly. These verses become the practical action of what God provides for us in this journey of the Christian life. We've been looking at this journey in the last few chapters of Romans This journey of what the scriptures call our sanctification. The daily walk of becoming like Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to know. As you walk in your faith. As you wake up every day. And make your way towards God's glorious end in heaven to be with him. That every moment, every day, God is with you. He is for you. And he has provided all that you need to thrive and succeed in this life. The rest of this chapter in chapter 8 sets forth a series of questions. We're not going to look at all the questions this morning, but there's a series of questions that are asked rhetorically to engage our minds on what we know to be true about what God has done for us. And Paul, as a some believe because he was a Pharisee that he was trained almost as like a lawyer. We have some lawyers with us this morning. They're probably really good at asking questions that... You know He's asking these questions to get us thinking, to get us to the edge of our seat, to consider the depth and the love and the greatness of what he has provided. And so we want to look at these questions this morning that don't become impossible answers, but they drive us to the truth so that we know for sure that we are in Christ. God will not lose one person whom he has saved. Not one. Think about that for a second. The king will not lose one person that is trusted in him. There may have been seasons and times in your life where you felt lost. Where you felt confused. Where you felt maybe God isn't for you. The king is for you. The king loves you. And the king won't lose you. Drawing on the picture of Camelot and the kingdom. Let's see what this text says about our assurance. The first thing that we see is that the king is mighty. The king is mighty. In verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, Paul asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, I don't believe the question that Paul asks here in verse 31 is just in relation to what he said in verses 28 through 30. Well, that was wonderfully true. I don't think it's just a question that he asks to what he says just in Romans chapter 8 alone. I I think this question naturally arrives as a result of everything that Paul has said in the book of Romans to this point. And and we talked about this theme many months ago now in Romans chapter 1. The main theme of Romans is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And building upon that theme for the next six chapters, Paul is again and again showing us just how powerful this gospel is. And as Paul is drawing our thoughts to a conclusion as he begins to transition in the chapter 9, Paul is asking us questions to consider the greatness of this salvation. And he says, what then shall we say about everything? If you've ever read the book of Romans or if you've sat here long enough in our study in the book of Romans, the question that hangs over us this morning is, what shall we say about it? I mean, think about all of the the wonderful truths, the depth of God's love, the way that he has justified us and sanctified us and promised to glorify us. What do we say to that? The question is, what shall we say Because again and again and again, God is saying, if he is for us, who is against us? Now, that statement in verse 31 probably needs a little clarification. In our English translations, we lose a sense of uh, what the original Greek rendering meant, but there's that sense of a condition, right, or a question If God is for us. It's not really a question. Uh, the, The better translation of if is he certainly is. Because it is so. That's the better translation of the original word. And so it's not so much a question. What then shall we say to these things? God is certainly for us who can be against us. If you're in Christ and you have been called according to His purpose, and that's what Paul said in Romans 8.28, right? Right? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If you are called according to God's purpose, if He has invited you, if He has brought you into a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus, and you have responded by faith and trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary to pay for your sins, if you are forgiven and redeemed... And you have been restored in your relationship with your creator. If God is for you, the question is, who's your enemy? And is that enemy so powerful that he could do anything to harm you? Nobody, nothing, can stand in the way of the purposes that God is going to bring about in your life. Nobody or nothing. Listen, when you look at verse 31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for, and then we have the word us, that includes everyone that's in the faith. If you want to write your name over the word us, please do so. If God is for Pastor Todd, who can stand against him? And I could go around and I can point at you know, the, all of you and you're probably like, please don't point my name out. We're on live feed and all those kind of things. But like, we could do that. You could write your name over the word us. And it can be that reminder, that, that wonderful reminder that if God is for you, who can stand against us? The king powerfully protects those who are under his care. God is both the giver and the sustainer of salvation. To believers, Paul is asking, in effect, who could conceivably take away our no-condemnation status? That's how Romans 8.1 begins, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question is, who can take that standing away? Nobody if the king declares it it is true forever Is there anyone stronger than God the creator of everything And we answer with a resounding no Paul is calling us to consider what king Hezekiah declared in 2nd Chronicles chapter 32 you don't have to turn there. I got the verse uh, here, in Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two. One of the kings of the kingdom of Judah, King Hezekiah, was uh, leading the nation in in their defense as. All of their enemies were coming around them. Sennacherib was one of those uh, enemies. He was from the east. He was coming in to bring trouble to the people of God. And we read, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So, my question to you is there's someone greater with us? Yes. Are you with me? There's someone greater with us. Heaven's King, the Lord Almighty. And as we walk through this life and we are we are pressed on every side and as, we are, as trouble is brought to us and, and there are people that are after us because we love the King and we follow the King. God is reminding us again and again and again that He is with us. They may have all of their weapons of war and all of their strength that we see with our eyes, But we have the Lord Almighty. And here's the thing. We know the end of the story. The spoiler alert. The king wins. And the king is victorious. He is for us. The second thing we see is that the king is generous. The king is generous. Look at verse 32. He he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So there's a question there for us to consider. We read in verse 3 of Romans chapter 8, For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. The depth of feeling that is implied in verse 3 is explained to us here in verse 32. The Father in showing love to us did not even spare his beloved Son. Jesus was given for you. And God's plan, eternal plan, for us cost him dearly. So the question that Paul's forcing us to wrestle with in verse thirty-two is if God did not spare his own beloved son, but he delivered, he handed over. That's what the word delivered means, the hand over. This wasn't something that they took Jesus away from the Father. Or they took his life from him. It was handed over, delivered. We read uh, a few weeks ago from the book of Isaiah that it pleased the father to crush the son. He was delivered over on our behalf. The question is, if that's what God the father has done, doesn't that show us he will give us everything else? I mean, we spend so much time in our practical walk with Jesus asking for things. And I don't even think we understand what we're asking for. We want God to do this. We want God to do that. We want God to bless here. We want God to prevent that. And we go through this give and take. And sometimes as we pray, we wonder if God is hearing us and if he's going to answer and Paul says, listen, consider the cross. If he has given the son, why won't he give anything else? Because the son is the ultimate gift. Now, here's the thing. Don't walk out of here excited and say, okay, I have the son, so he's going to give me whatever I ask. It's got to be in accordance to his will. And you know what the will of God is? Romans eight twenty eight. he causes all things to work together for good even the painful things, even the hard things. Just know that the Father isn't going to hold anything back when He shows His love to you. The argument in verse 32 is the argument of greater to lesser. He he considers us to consider the greatness of the gift of Jesus. Now there's the lesser things. If the Father gives the best, why would He hold anything back? Now how could it possibly be that God would sacrifice His own Son for the sake of those who believe in Him and then cast some of those blood-bought believers out of His presence? That's, That's the truth of assurance here. If the Son has come to rescue, to save, to restore, to bring to Him and forgive, then if you are in Christ, why would He cast any of those people out from Him? Would God do less for believers after they are saved than he did for them prior to their salvation? And the answer is no. If God loved us so much while we were wretched sinners, and if you're our guest this morning, God loves you. He, he is for you. But the word of God says that you are wretched. We are wretched before we came to faith in Jesus. That if God loved us so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, was delivered up for us, would He then turn His back on us after we were cleansed from sin, forgiven of sin, and made righteous in His sight? The answer is a resounding no. God would never, ever do that. Our God is the supreme provider. The God whom we ask to give us all things is the God who has already given us all things in His Son. God will provide what is ever necessary in your life to complete your salvation that results in your ultimate glorification. God doesn't hold back. Thirdly, the King is the ultimate judge. In verse 33, we read, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Listen, the scriptures tell us emphatically that there is an accuser of the people of God, and his name is Satan. And Satan is often found... In the presence of God the Father. And that might blow your mind, but Satan right now has access to be in the presence of God. He will eventually be cast out of the presence of God at a later time. But the, that Satan has an opportunity to borrow God's ear from time to time and say, hey, look at those guys whom you love, those guys who say they love you, look at how they're really living. Do you see what he did today? Did you see that thought that they had? Did you hear those words that were spoken? There is an accuser of the brethren. Satan is constantly bringing charges against God's elect. The question that Paul asks is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Listen. The accusations may come, and sometimes, even though there is an accuser of the brethren, don't we do a pretty good job of accusing ourselves? You know, my wife likes uh, Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore and "Woe is Me" and you know the, the, the cloud and the rain and you know you know the Eeyore kind of mentality, right? Like, boo, boo. you know, don't we do that sometimes? We hang our head low. Listen, those charges amount to nothing in the presence of the righteous judge. God is the one who justifies. The one who decides who is righteous before him is the one who declares you are no longer condemned. We have been declared eternally guiltless and are no longer under condemnation. We no longer bear the wrath, the penalty, the punishment for sin. The only one that could condemn is God himself. Truly, as the righteous judge. God conceived the law. He revealed the law. He interprets the law. He applies the law. And through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, Jesus met every demand of the law. And the law stands true. And everyone who has trusted in him is declared free and forgiven. Therefore, God is the only true person, if we could use that term, to, de- to charge the believer with guilt. He will not do so because God is for us. He has provided His Son to pay the penalty for our sins. And He has already declared us to be righteous. We are already declared righteous. We are already declared righteous it's not a future thing it's a now thing and when the king declares who we are we need to live in the truth of what the king has said god has passed over his favorable sentence on you in full view of your depravity and shortcomings when god declared you righteous who can challenge his verdict I said this before, but it goes uh, worth repeating that God justified you with his eyes wide open. He knew you. He knew where you came from. He knew what was going on in your heart. He knew how far you had fallen. He knew that there was nothing pleasing in you, that there was nothing inside of you that was grasping and groping and longing for him. And he rescued you. He knew the worst about you at the time when you accepted him. And through faith, for Jesus' sake, he has forgiven you. What can anybody tell God about you that he doesn't already know? It's not that the accusations made against believers by Satan or by anyone else are always false. Right, they're often true. You know, when Satan is saying, "Hey, did you see what he did today?" He's like, "Yeah, I saw it," and we're like, "Yep, we did it." It's not that they're false. The fact that we are not yet sinless is obvious in our own lives. You, we don't have to look very far to say, "Yep, I still got this struggle of my flesh." But even when the charge against us is true, it is never sufficient grounds for our damnation. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are now clothed in his righteousness. Now we need a healthy reminder that no one can bring a charge before the Lord that would cause him to stop the work of salvation on our behalf. But this doesn't also mean that because these things are true, that we can leave here and and act like we can do whatever we want. In fact, contrary to that, we don't sin more so grace can abound. That's what Paul said earlier in Romans, that we don't live that way. We know these things to be true, and what should it do for us? It should cause us to fall on our knees and praise and worship of our great God and King, that in spite of all those things, He will not lose one of us whom he loves. Finally, our God intercedes on our behalf. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says, because he speaking of Jesus and and just some context, this is Paul talking uh, to a bunch of people that were gathered, trying to figure out all of the things about the gospel and who God is. And Paul assures with great certainty that there is a day. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, that there is a day of reckoning coming. There is a day. And that Jesus will return. And he will, in righteousness, judge the world. Jesus is the appointed judge who will come and condemn the unrighteous. But he will not condemn the elect. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. I love what Paul says there. We know as a fact Jesus died. He died on the cross. And, and it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just point to the cross. He points to the resurrection. And what, what Paul says with great fervor is who is the one? Nobody. Christ died. Yes, rather he was raised. That life is found in his resurrection. And we see four realities in verse 34 that I just need to bring to your attention, first, that Christ died, that his death paid your penalty, that his death bore your condemnation, and that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf is the only condemnation we will ever know. Secondly, we're raised because Christ is raised from the dead. His, his resurrection proved his victory over sin. The grave could not hold Jesus because he conquered death. And his conquest over death bequeaths eternal life to every person that trusts in him. You're raised to new life because he was raised to new life. Thirdly, Jesus is at the right hand of God, the place of divine exaltation and honor. He's there because, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Fourth, Jesus intercedes for us. Although his work of satisfying God's wrath was finished, his continuing ministry of intercession at the right hand of the Father As what uh, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 says, when it says that Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always pleading our case. Jesus is always interceding. Jesus is always standing for us in the presence of the Father, making intercession for us. He is the perfect priest, He's provided the perfect sacrifice. And to deny the security of the believer is to deny the sufficiency of the work that that Jesus has accomplished. To deny the security of the believer is to misunderstand the heart of God and to misunderstand the gift of Christ and to misunderstand the meaning of the cross and to misunderstand the biblical meaning of salvation. So my question to you as we think about these things is, how's your confidence this morning? Do we need to open the doors? Are you going to race out of this place on fire for the Lord, excited that Jesus knows you, loved you, forgave you, and you're his forever? Listen, if we end the service and Brian does the benediction and you stand up and say, okay, I don't know where you've been for the last 40 minutes. And I should probably hand in my resignation. How's your confidence this morning? Are you sure why you are safe in the secure love of Jesus Christ? Are you ready to run out of this building to set the world on fire for Jesus? Are you able to rest knowing that Jesus has done it all? I pray so. But maybe you're here this morning and. You hear all these wonderful things and you're excited, but you really don't know what that means. Like, you don't know what that means. Your heart can't rest. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, this all sounds too good to be true. Oh, God, I don't have to do anything. I just believe, I trust. That seems too good to be true. Well, let me assure you this morning, it is absolutely 100% true. All of it. The Father loves you so much that he has sent his son Jesus to take your place, to die your death, to bear your wrath. And he's inviting you to rest in his finished work. The work of the cross, the power of the resurrection and the hope of life with Him forever. It's incredibly simple. All you need to do is understand that you need a Savior and believe that Savior that has come and His name is Jesus. And with you and God, just you and Him, just cry out. Understanding that that unsettled, uneasy feeling of disconnection and separation has come because you have done things in your life that is called sin. And it has separated you from God. And yet by His grace, God has done everything to bring you back to Him. And so you confess that you have sinned, but you also believe that God has done everything. By sending his son Jesus so that he has taken your place. And why did God do that? Because he loves you. Because he wants you to be with him. Salvation isn't just so that we can get the burden of sin lifted off of our shoulders. I mean, that's a great benefit. Salvation is so that we, the creation, can be with the creator forever. And not just forever in heaven, but forever beginning now. To walk through life with the understanding that the one who made you and gave you purpose is the one that has brought you back to him and he is for you who can stand against. so I want to pray for you that if you know Jesus in this way, that you leave here with great assurance in what you know to be true about his love for you. And I want to pray for you that if you don't know him, that right now I pray that you hear God is crying out from the throne of heaven. Would you just come to him and surrender and believe in what he has done? And if you are to trust in what Jesus has done, you can know forgiveness right here. And if that's a decision that you make, it's not an isolated decision that you never share with anyone. Sure, it's a personal decision, but as with the child dedication service, we celebrate it together. We celebrate it with God's people. This is why we gather every week to declare God's praise and glory together for delivering us from our sin. God has given us a great Savior. So let me pray for you.